welcome to Beauty Will Save the World. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Susie Solaviv. I am a narrative consultant working for myself, a cradle Orthodox Christian from a convert family, married to Gregory. We have one daughter. We live outside of Boston, and I read way too many books. I'm Rebecca Lonovich. I love the Orthodox Christian Church, and I want to share conversations here about the faith from our hybrid cradle convert perspective. I'm married to Victor, the best person in the world, and together we have three sons and live in the Pennsylvania wilds. This podcast is about faith and friendship, family and food, feminism, books, Netflix, art, and music. All the things. Most of all, it is about our experiences of beauty that brings us deeper into the love of God. Well, tell me what you've been up to, Susie. What have I been up to? We talked pretty recently, so I have to remember what's happened since then. We recorded our previous episode on Thursday, yes, and today is Monday. Yeah. So I had a very pleasant weekend with a very pleasant home service on Sunday. I don't remember Saturday at all. It's just a complete blur. Can like can all the parents out there give me an amen for that? Because if there are just some days that fly by and you're like, I don't know what happened. Yeah, um, that's true. And today was the first day I'm doing a childcare swap with a friend and I'm so pleased. Oh. Uh, yes. So she had my daughter this morning up through like one thirty after they finished lunch. And I then I came and got her and I'm going to have her kids on Friday morning. This very deep peace came over me when I knew I could just get my work done. And I didn't have to feel inadequate around my work or my parenting, which like, I shouldn't have to feel inadequate anyway. But when your energies are that divided, it's really hard. Yes, yes, it is. And when you're doing it all at home too, you know, there's not even a physical separation (laughs) of what you're doing. I think this is the case for most kids, but when they're small, they just really want mom and dad doesn't cut it. Um, My mother says that it's because moms are for solving problems and dads are for fun, which I kind of object to, but I think is also true on a certain level. Like the, like the kid really wants that deep nurturing from their first secure place, you know? Uh-huh. That makes sense. Anyway, tell me what you've been up to, Rebecca. I bet it's been more fun. Well, let's see. We had, the boys had Friday out of school because there was a potential COVID exposure. So we shut down the school. Oh and so the boys are home for the day, which was nice. It was nice to have them. But having to do our flexible instruction day packet was was a little bit of a chore, mm-hmm. I'll say. But but we got through it, and then we had some friends over on Friday night who've been sort of our COVID friends. So Saturday we got up and we were going to go to State College, but instead we kept getting kind of like delayed. Like we we're like, oh, well, we should get lunch first. So we got lunch, we got um to go, and then but just like, well, let's just stop by the house again and eat it since we'll be going that way anyway uh, to State College. So we sat by the house to eat. And then someone came by to drop something off and we ended up chatting with them for a little while and showed them Victor's little project in the woods. He's building sort of like period campsite, like a fire area. And he's building benches. And he's going to build a table, kind of rustic and stuff. So we took them out there to show them that. And then we were like, oh, well, let's go get some ice cream because we just found out about this new shop that isn't in town. 
And so we went over there to get ice cream. And then we're like, well, I guess it's time to, for naps. <laughs> so we took the kids home. And now, I mean, we had, I think we had pizza for dinner. <laughs> and it was just a low-key day. And it was, but it was really nice. And then Victor, my husband, has this week off. It's another staycation week. I'm looking forward to this week. Actually, be nice to be together more, and it'll be nice not to have to be the one that does all the school drop-offs and pickup, and just to get a few things done that I wanted to. First thing I got accomplished this week since he's been home was that I took apart my dishwasher and cleaned it, which I guess you know you do have to do periodically, and I hadn't done it for a while, and I took it all apart, cleaned it, put it all back together. Realized I'd missed a piece that was on the very bottom. So I took it all apart myself and put it all back together myself. And today I ordered a new wheel for the upper rack, which I broke yesterday. So yeah, it's been a fun-filled weekend. <laughs> so that's me. Well, we had so much fun talking about theology of the home last week. And I felt like we didn't get to talk about it enough. So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about hospitality and coziness and what that looks and feels like for us and why it's important and sort of living in our home and like the rhythm of that and how it sort of is the manifestation in many ways of our liturgical cycles and just cycles of life. So what are your thoughts on that, Susie? Talk to me about cozy. When you think about coziness in home, what do you think of and how do you try to to cultivate it? Or if that's not your value, I guess. Why not? I think cozy is definitely a value. And I've tried to be more intentional about it as I, especially like, actually, as we started setting up the Airbnb, I really wanted to cultivate coziness there and make it feel like a haven and a retreat and everything. In my own home, uh, I think, you know, I'm not sure that setting up cozy spaces comes to me naturally or perhaps it's not what I think of as being like my natural environment. Like I will always set up a place to read and I'll, I'll always set up a place for people to gather, but it's actually from my sister-in-law, Emily, that I've learned a lot about making a home truly cozy. She is a genius at making her home smell wonderful all the time. It's just like, it's something that I aspire to. She has like the best tasting candles. They're not overpowering. They're just like clean and nice. And she uses like really nice, really nice cleaner cleaning stuff. I've switched to all Mrs. Meyers stuff in my house, which has helped a bit. But I, she also like, she's really good at layering tech, different kinds of different kinds of textures. So she has like she has sheepskin rugs and blankets all over the place and yeah she's she's pretty good at cultivating that like Scandinavian huga right that's how you say it yes that's how you say it huga yep <laughs> but not something that you smoke correct so i've i've tried to to follow her lead in that regard and you know incorporate more natural fibers and little candles and like smaller sort of pools of light rather than I've, I've always hated overhead lighting. I definitely prefer lamps. So our rooms have a lot of lamps and we don't use our fireplace right now. It needs to be cleaned pretty thoroughly and, you know, we need to have the chimney swept and stuff, but I put candles in the fireplace and I light those. And our, 
Our big room we call the Great Hall. It has rafters and it feels a little bit like a medieval banquet hall. (laughs) And last year, I believe it was last year, I put up Christmas lights all along the rafters and it was just so pleasant that we've left them up year round. Oh, fun. So that's pretty cozy. We also do slippers, nut shoes in the house, and I have a collection of guest slippers I leave at the door. So I try to offer them to people when they come in. I would never want to tell a guest they have to take off their shoes, but I just, you know, you can see the pile of shoes at our door and there are guest slippers available right there and I point them out. Right, right. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, food. I think that having readily available snacks is just... Well, it's a part, an important part of life, but it's also like key to creating a cozy environment, like having a cup of tea ready. We started to talk about this Mm -hmm. last time, always having a cup of tea and a little snack ready to make sure that like your guests or your loved ones are not, are not uncomfortable. Take care of their most Uh basic needs first. Yes. Yes. Oh, the other thing. I need to let you talk, but the other thing that I've been really deliberately cultivating in the winter is it's not coziness exactly. It's more like keeping a sense of life and lushness and plants. There are just a lot of plants. I have a lot of plants, Rebecca. (laughs) I want, so Gregory and I actually disagree on this. He doesn't like this look, but he's been overruled. I like to come in and like in the winter and see a jungle inside my house to see this profusion of plants. And it really raises my spirits. So I have a couple of spots where I just have a whole bunch of them. I try not to spread them out too much because then it makes it hard to water them. But it's really nice to have at a couple of key places, just this abundance of greenery. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I'm not a very good millennial in that regard. I do have one plant that I bought myself and I'm trying to cultivate. It's not going well. I just don't have the consistency that you need to care for a plant, but I'm trying to learn. I don't know. It's like my little self-improvement project for the next probably rest of my life, learning how to care for plants. I have honestly been terrible at caring for plants historically, but I just was so depressed in the winter Uh that I really, aside from my sun lamp, I really needed something else. Yes. I think I never intentionally thought about what coziness would look like in my house until I moved here to Pennsylvania and realized how long the winters are. There's just so much time inside And going outside is just just something you don't really want to do for a solid six months. So it has been something that's on my mind more than it ever was before. I'd not ever actually lived in a house aside from my apartment I had in college. That was completely mine, like a blank slate for me. Because when I got married, I moved into Victor's house, which he already had and had made very nice. And then when we moved here, the house was actually fully furnished and decorated. I think it's absolutely lovely. Probably not what I would have picked out myself, but I'm just trying to understand it and like live with it before I change too much. So back to coziness. On our old house, we took up all the carpet and I was really adamant about not putting down more carpeting or any kind of carpets because I liked, I had all the furniture on little like felt coasters so that I could move every stick of furniture and vacuum and mop 
the whole entire floor whenever I wanted to. And somehow that was just super important to me. And then I had my first child and, you know, with little kids, wipeability is pretty high, high value. Like there's a premium on that. And so when we moved here, I was kind of horrified that like it's mostly carpet. And sure enough, like kids spill on it all the time, I'm constantly cleaning it. I finally got my own carpet cleaner because I was spending fortune calling in the carpet cleaner service. And in the meantime, I fell in love with it, strangely. And it's the warmth, the comfort of sitting on the floor or like on a hardwood floor. It's just not nice. It's the um, sound reduction, like noise reduction quality, which I never realized in an old house, but it was so noisy. It's much more quiet and serene in the long, in the long term. The carpet has fabulous colors. It's bright, almost limey green mm. in the living room and dining room. There's this yellow, green, gray stripe in the breakfast room. Don't get me started on breakfast room carpet. My my room is a deep pink, my bedroom. The boys' room is a brighter pink, very fuzzy, very plush. And the den is the best. It's a large area rug with orange and yellow and black, very bright. And I, I love it all. So when the time comes to replace, we might not have the same colors, but I will definitely a lot of it with carpet because I, I actually genuinely love it now. Another thing, okay, here's another thing I love about this house specifically, and I think we don't think about this in design, but our house is heated with hot water baseboards. Do you know this kind of heating? Is that what you have? Uh, yes. See, I only ever knew forced air, which kind of like blasts you with hot air and then cuts off and you get a little bit cold, depending on the house. Our old house was drafty, so you got really cold and then it blasts you with hot air again and then it gets cold again. But this hot water baseboard heating, plus the fact that this house is built very tight, it just says this lovely, radiant, constant heat. It's not as drying because it's not hot air blowing on you. And it just gives you this steady, constant, very regulatable warmth. And I love that. I think the number one thing as far as coziness is probably where it intersects with hospitality for me. Like being able to welcome people and not have a lot of barriers like physical or like lifestyle barriers to that. Does that make sense? Totally. Yes. And I love that. What do you think is important about coziness and cultivating it? I think because home is a place for rest and because I think it's hard to come by even at home if you can sort of engineer an environment that promotes that, then you may be able to achieve it better and then like a more whole kind of way. And I think there's probably some sort of balance there between like self-absorbed, like almost hedonistic kind of coziness. Like, you know, I got my <laughs> got my hot chocolate and my fluffy blanket and my Netflix, whatever, all those things I love, by the way. But I think it's deeper. Like what I'm trying to cultivate is deeper than that. It's more of like a ambiance than just like physical things. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. And I think you were talking about simple things like the plants you mentioned, which I think all kinds of studies about how much good it does for your like mental and emotional health just to be in the same space as plants. So Greg can shove it. I aspire to the house being more tidy. I'm pretty particular about it being clean, but tidiness is like a constant. I always had this idea that if I can just like behind like get everything tidy and clean the way I want it, I'll be happy. 
And I, I know that I know that's not real, but nevertheless, so I think that probably goes to closing this, just like not having to struggle to have a place for something. Everything has a place and can go in there simply little things that kind of promote coziness for me. I think coziness is also something primal. I think we crave that feeling of comfort and warmth and security to know that we're out of the element. Yeah. And that's so much more present to me now that I live further north. One of the things I know we wanted to talk about still was the rhythm of the liturgical year in the home. Yeah. We bring it in. So what do you do? Is there any, do you guys have any special traditions or anything that you do to mark the passage of the church year? Well, I'm trying to do more. I try at Easter time, I have our Easter decorations, you know, like decorated eggs or a few like fridge magnets. And I made some little garlands a couple years ago to decorate with. I just wanted to kind of mark it for the boys as a festive, joyful time. Not unlike we do at Christmas, you know, there's special foods, different times of the liturgical year. But something I kind of just want to be better at, I guess, like just being like grow basil for exaltation of the cross. Like, Oh, that's cute. I hadn't heard of that. I love that. Well, it'd be a nice thing and to kind of like connect everyday life to the liturgical season. I really love entry at the Theotokos into the temple. It's like this beautiful sort of hidden winter feast that comes right after Thanksgiving. It's kind of like a lot of hustle and bustle that time of year. And I just love that feast and I just want to mark it a little bit more for the boys as well as Candlemas, which actually is a big deal around here because of Groundhog Day. Did you know that? Groundhog Day is on a new calendar, Candlemas, and it is because that was the day in, I think, Germany, where it was traditional, like the, the theme of the light. And so that's why the, I think in the old days, it was maybe a badger. But regardless, <laughs> an animal that lives in the den comes out to see his shadow and sort of predicting the end of, of winter. We live close to Punxsutawney, if anybody is confused about that. The groundhogs are a big deal around here. And everybody celebrates, whether they realize it or not, the meeting of our Lord. So, so yeah, just some more things like that. And the the meeting of the Lord is actually the that's the feast that we've named our little home chapel after. Oh, really? So it wasn't really intentional, but from my childhood, since I was a baby, have had an icon of the meeting of the Lord that I've really loved. And it now hangs in our family icon corner in the Great Hall. And two years ago, I was in a thrift store and I found this massive hand-painted icon of the meeting of the Lord that looked as though it came from an iconostas maybe in Ukraine or something because the iconography was like 19th century Western, but it was very clearly an Orthodox icon gorgeous and crumbling and it was for sale for $12 and I ended up getting it for nine. I was like, this is really priceless. Um, and it's been hanging in our library, but it's, it's really crumbling pretty badly. So we've now taken it down and we've, we need to get it restored, but it's not so easy to find someone who can do such a thing because we found that icon. I was like, you don't just find something like this. You just don't. (laughs) Right. So because of that, Greg and I both felt that we should name our little home chapel if we have one eventually, which I hope to when we renovate the basement after the meeting of the Lord and, you know, St. Simeon and Hannah. And I've always loved the story of St. Simeon too, and St. Hannah. Right. 
Yes, I do too. That thought of living a life in anticipation, kind of probably like a little bit of a sorrowful anticipation, but I guess that's what is meant by joyful sorrow, right, Susie? (laughs) Something like that, maybe. And to finally receive the Lord, literally, that's absolutely lovely. Oh, so is there anything that you all, anything else you all do to mark the church year? Well, we, you know, try to do like an Akathis for St. Ksenia on her feast date. Well, I guess she has two, sort of. And this last year, you know, we had our first Pasca at home, which I, I hope we never forget and maybe in some way commemorate going forward. So yeah, and then of course, you know, everybody celebrates Christmas and uh, decorates for Christmas and anticipates Christmas. So that's coming up and we can talk more about that. But I think it's it is definitely something that I would like to do more of. I think that's something that children are particularly receptive to. They really do respond to traditions and rhythms and and so that's a way for them to be themselves like more tangibly connected to the liturgical cycle. Yeah. Well, to help with that, there is this amazing website slash company called Draw Near Designs. And no, this episode is not sponsored by them, but I'm about to tell you how much I love everything they do. I discovered them because they put out an Orthodox children's calendar and Uh they, I was part of their, what was it? A Kickstarter or GoFundMe or whatever to fund an old calendar version of it. So the first year it was just a new calendar and now they put out old and new calendar versions, which I'm so grateful for. And they have little icons of saints that people sponsored to have in, drawn and put in there. And every month comes with a lovely illustration and quote. And then there are suggested activities connected to the feasts in that month. And oh. to be honest, we don't usually do them because my daughter has been so young. So I felt like in many ways, it's been more of a resource for me. But that's okay, because I can pass those things on to her as she gets older. They also put out an advent calendar that you can use for the old or new calendar. That's like a large piece of cloth with little pockets. And you can either put little treats in the pockets for each day of advent, or there's a book called, oh, I'm going to bungle it. What's it called? Greeting the Christ child, welcoming the Christ child. That sounds more right. And that book comes with a set of ornaments based on the illustrations in the book, Welcoming the Christ Child, that has Old Testament readings for your family to do. And you can pull one out each day. And again, like we didn't sit down and do the Old Testament readings, but we would have my daughter pull out the ornament each day during Advent and we would hang it up. And so that was a way for her to mark the passage of of time. And this year, I'm super excited. We usually make a Santa Lucia wreath out of construction paper for St. Lucy's Day. And we do like in the shoes on St. Nicholas Day. But this year I got these two little peg dolls, one of St. Nicholas and one of St. Lucy. So I'm going to put them in the little pockets of the advent calendar (laughs) so that she could play with them on the day. And I'm just like, I mean, so much of this stuff is for us, but like when we do it for ourselves, I think they also feel the joy and then we can start figuring out what really pleases them. Yes. That is the one I forgot. We do try to celebrate St. Nicholas Day. And it's my oldest son, Nico's namesake. And as it happens, our parish here that we attend in the next town down, Du Bois, is St. Nicholas Orthodox Church. And so there's always liturgy on his namesake. And I usually take him out of school and we all go. And, you know, we have them put out their shoes. And 
I tried to get Victor to get on board with getting them a gold coin, an actual gold coin. I looked up for like a very small one. It was, I think it was over $400. Oh, no. It wasn't, it wasn't fully practical. And Victor said, well, what are they going to do with gold coins? And I said, well, obviously if they're ever kidnapped by pirates, they will pay for their ransom. Yeah, clearly. So, I mean, you never know what could happen <laughs> when you might need them. But but no, for now, we're not doing that. We just give them the chocolate kind. Oh, so for Lent, what we've been doing is the Greeks out a Lenten calendar every year that has circles for each day of Lent and then a small icon for the Sundays and for other holy days. And so what we do is I just have these round green stickers and they fit perfectly over this free printable. And so for Lent for the last two or three years, I have printed out this calendar and have my daughter put a sticker on each day for Lent. Okay. Aww. Yeah. And it's just nice because she really loves that stuff. Like she really loves marking the passage of time. So we do it for Lent and we do it for Advent. I tried doing an Advent wreath because people were posting about them on Instagram and I got a little jealous and just realized that I wasn't going to keep up with it. It has to be every day or it's not going to happen. So other things I've tried are, I really, really dislike the Apostles Fast. It's my least favorite fast because you don't get a fun holiday at the end. I don't think I should have a least favorite fast, but I do. That means you're human. I don't think that's bad. I'm not over here like, oh... I can't even pick a favorite. But so a few years ago, I've been trying to read through the lives of the apostles, every apostles fast. And I will be honest with you. I think, I don't know if it's ever happened that I've made it all the way through. I think maybe the first year, but I always make it through Saints Peter and Paul and hopefully a couple of others. And it's actually pretty fun because their lives are like adventure stories. So when you say the lives, what are you talking about? Like a... Like a Lives of the Saints kind of lives or epistles? There is a book that's the Lives of the Twelve Apostles. Oh. I'll see if I can find the information on it. We can post it in the show notes. But Yeah, I guess I need to get this book. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And some of them are really short. So if you are like running out of time, then you can Uh read the short ones and still feel like you tried. So do you have like a most particularly beloved church season or liturgical season? Oh, I mean, the answer to that is always Pascha, of course. Yeah, that's everybody's yeah. favorite. Let me think about that. I really like the end of summer, beginning of fall, huh? when we have kind of like cool feast after cool feast. And you also get, I mean, Transfiguration is one of my very favorites because it's a beautiful feast. And the significance of it was impressed on me by Father David Strott, the rector of the parish in Rocky Hill, New Jersey. When I was a parishioner there, he gave a really nice sermon. And it was one of my first days at the church. And so I felt quite attached to it. And I also remember my brother when he was alive serving in Transfiguration. But mostly, honestly, I have good associations with it because of the fruit. Yes. The fruit is so good. It's just so good. And like, I really loved it as a kid when grownups would give me fruit. So I try to give fruit to kids on that day. And then they look at me like I'm a creeper. <laughs> Try to give it to their parents and not directly to them, but their parents aren't always around. So I'm like, hey, you want some fruit? Kid? I found the perfect salad for Transfiguration. Never actually got it together to make it on Transfiguration. Do tell. 
it's from Better Homes and Gardens from a long time ago, but it's a wheat berry based. So it's like a fruit and grain salad, which, well, wheat berries are used in other Orthodox sort of traditional foods. But because Transfiguration is a harvest time holiday, Mm. I thought it was particularly appropriate. And then it has all the summer fruits, cantaloupe, cucumbers, blueberries. It has a creamy green dressing of like herbs and oil and stuff. And it has avocados and edamame. And if you want, it can have smoked salmon. So it has all the things, you know, like like all the fruits and sort of like harvesty, harvested things. Yes. And then the salmon too for the feast day. And I think I made it one time like around the season. And so I've been like, going to make it again, but haven't gotten it together. But yeah, yeah that's my goal is to sort of curate like kind of like an American sort of catalog of, of foods and traditions of foods that we eat or things that we do I guess that we can kind of baptize for this well we've started doing cupcakes for the nativity of the Theotokos because it's her birthday and then you heard about my donuts for dormition disaster right that's right I spent all I think it was even a two-day project and then out of two batches, only nine donuts survived, frosted them. And my daughter and I decorated them. And I took this glorious picture of them on this Fiesta Ware plate that I really loved. And I must have just nudged it a little bit right after <laughs> I took the picture, I reached over and it shattered on the floor. It just shattered and all of the donuts were covered in glass. And I had bought a special donut pan and everything. And my daughter let out the biggest wail I ever heard from her. Like there's just this moment and then like just so on top of my own tragedy I was dealing with her. There's this phrase in the Bible, it's especially in the Old Testament, and whoever it is, it goes like and so and so, whoever they are, lifted up their voice and wept. That was exactly it. Sometimes with my kids. Rebecca, one really nice tradition we've started since being at home is that when there's a feast of the cross, I have a blessing cross that I inherited from my brother because, you know, he was a priest. And so I put it on this plate that's the right size for it, like a platter. And then we gather flowers from our garden to decorate it. And that has been so nice. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. It's just such a great way to get my daughter involved because she loves picking flowers. And so, yeah, I've even put some herbs around it for my herb garden. I put, we have a crazy amount of time growing. So So you have enough time that you're telling me we've got all the time in the world, baby. This is such a fun topic for me because I've been coming up with all these different ways to celebrate things. One thing I read in Gretchen Rubin's the happiness project is that she has special pictures of the family on different occasions that she puts out. Uh-huh. And so I take a family photo in front of the church at Pascha every year. Uh-huh. I framed some of them and I put those pictures out during the Paschal season. And then the last thing I was going to say was I still make a church new year resolution for myself. But when I was younger, like right out of college, my girlfriends and I got together to celebrate the church new year and we toasted it with champagne and we all made church new year's resolutions. And it was just delightful, especially because it wasn't at midnight. So no one was tired. It was like the afternoon. (laughs) Right. Well, you remind me of something, which is that you notice that increasingly around American culture, people are 
celebrating like holidays or seasons more. When I was younger, there was no such thing as fall decorating season, right? And now it's this whole thing. Like you got to get pumpkins for your porch and mums and such and garlands in your house, which I love. Like I'm, I'm making a garland myself. In fact, there's a whole Valentine's season and not to mention things, you know, like Halloween or, and then of course, Christmas. The Christmas season that never, ever ends. Christmas is like riotous, you know. I've heard a lot of people sort of remonstrating <laughs> this as a symbol of excess. or People don't understand the real reason for celebrations. You know, this sort of puritanical, almost like looking down on too much revelry. <laughs> or maybe in particular, physical manifestations of it. But I think perhaps it is this sort of desire that a lot of us maybe have but don't even realize where it comes from to mark these occasions in a joyful celebratory way and that is lost largely in American Christianity and in like western cultural practices in general been kind of abolished the religious like incarnational expression of these things of these holidays has been minimized or abolished in our culture and people needing something to celebrate needing something to commemorate have sort of filled it in with what they know, which is consumerism and excess. But it's sort of an echo and like a longing for the deepness and beauty and meaning and physicality, incarnational reality of the life of the church. Yeah, I think the desire for connection to the rhythm to the rhythm of the year is innate yeah. because connection to that physical reality ultimately connects us back to the higher spiritual reality. Like the repetition of it reminds us of immortality too, I think. Oh, I never thought about it that way. We get to like, we get to relive these things over and over again. Yeah. I like that. It gives you like a little, like a little sort of taste of eternity. Like, yeah. Oh, I did want to say one thing about American culture too, which is my pet peeve. Well, the thing I love about Orthodox culture is that there's a time of preparation, there's the holiday, and then there's the celebration. And uh-huh. in Western American culture, at least, it seems like there's celebration, there's the holiday, which can be a letdown, and then right. it's over and everything is gone. And it it goes back to, um, I'm going to quote Gretchen Rubin again. There's kind of three parts to happiness and to enjoying an event. There's the anticipation, there's the event itself, and then there's the savoring afterwards. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like in our contemporary culture, we've ended up cutting out the anticipation. We've gone straight to the event itself and tried to draw that out as long as possible. Yes. And then like savoring, there's no... There's no slow taper off. It's just done. Yeah, like people haul their Christmas tree to the curb on December 26th. Yeah. You know, or like the first year that we moved here, it just worked out somehow that Victor had the week between Christmas and New Year's off of work. I just kept thinking, this feels so right. This feels so normal to me. And it took me a little while to remember that when I was very young, my dad was in pharmacy school. And so he was off between Christmas and New Year's, maybe a little bit beyond. And to me, that felt like the most normal Christmas thing of all. And I would like to encourage 
any captains of industry listening out there, let's make that a thing again. Let people have, like, what's so important that has to happen between Christmas and New Year's that people can have a little bit of time to celebrate and savor? Absolutely. At my job in biotech, they gave the days between Christmas and New Year's off. Oh. Um, the company just shut down and it was a small company, but it was so good. Like it just, it was such a morale booster too. Absolutely. I think that should be more of a cultural thing. And maybe like a few other times a year, like, oh, you know what? Actually, I want to, we can talk about this in another episode, but just real quick about Easter. And I've heard people say this and I've experienced it myself. This sort of like letdown after Pascha, like, oh, you know, the, Holy Week is such a spiritual high, and then there's Pascha, and then you feel a letdown. First of all, I think that may be in large part due to the reintroduction of dairy to your diet. <laughs> Calm down on the cheese. Like, maybe take it easy. It does have a real effect, like, suddenly to add all these heavy foods back into your, uh, in large quantities, if you're an American. But also, I think we maybe need to go a little bit deeper into Orthodox tradition to embrace celebration. People get to where they don't embrace celebration. They're like, oh no, it's too happy. You know, they're comfortable with the fasting that makes sense to them and their repentance, repentance, right? Like be sad, be sad. And they can embrace a celebratory season of the liturgical year. And I don't think that's orthodox and I don't think that's proper for us. But I do think that it is probably something that you have to cultivate. Like celebration and um, festivity that's holy and not hedonistic, which is kind of like the only way we sort of connect with it in many ways, celebration in modern times, you know, especially Americans, like there's like, there's like being good. And then there's like partying. Yeah. And there's not really a between. I will say that is one thing that I love about Russian and Russian American culture is like, they just know how to celebrate and have a good time. My husband always says, and I agree with him, but you know, if you're going to a Russian party on a Sunday, like uh-huh. that's what you're going to do for the day. You right. go and you're ready to be there all day. And for an American party, or if you have like American people, I say this in, in quotations, of course, because we're both American, you go and you stay like an hour, maybe an hour and a half, you don't really eat anything, and then you leave. Uh-huh. Very weird to me. <laughs> right. That might be a New Englander thing. That's not how it is in the South. That's good. Enjoy the South more than I think then. <laughs> I mean, actually, my Southern relatives are like that. My Southern relatives will stay all day, but New Englanders definitely will not. I think that if we feel tired or if we feel let down after Pascha, probably what we need to do is look outside ourselves and our own spiritual experience or whatever, like whatever, like mega holy feelings that I've been conjuring up in my head and like re-engage with the life of the church and the life of your community, like host a dinner. Yeah. Gather your girlfriends for the Holy Murderers. Well, I mean, I'm a little biased because that's my name's day. But Greg and I, this year, when everything was shut down, we went Pasca caroling and we went to a bunch of different houses and just sang an ode from the canon. We really enjoyed it. It's like the one day you know people will be home. Right. And growing up, I feel very passionate about this, Rebecca. Growing up, my priest always had a huge open house. So that's what we did in the afternoon uh-huh. and evening on Pascha. And now yeah. 
at my home parish, the deacon does it. One of the deacons hosts it. And we had planned to try to host a similar event for our parish this year. Another couple did it last year, but I think someone should always be welcoming people in. And and then as the week goes on, you can find other ways to connect with people and connect back to the church. There's the life-giving spring at the end of the week. And then... Mm -hmm. What's it called? The Tuesday after possible where you go visit the graves? Yes, I love that. Yeah, and we we always do it because my dad is buried at our current parish. We have a graveyard attached to our church, which is pretty cool. And so when I was a kid, we would go and picnic by the grave. And so now that I'm an adult and we live here again, that's what we do. We go and we have a picnic by the grave. But like, what better way to demonstrate to children the belief in the resurrection, right? And to reaffirm it ourselves, you know? Yeah, totally. But yeah, I guess that's what I really think. For me, celebration is always about other people. It's so hard to celebrate alone. Celebration should be about community. Absolutely. Coming together. You don't just have to come together and be sad (laughs) on Great Holy Friday. But like to prioritize celebration not less than we prioritize the preparation for the feast, you know, like the services before. It's not less important. It's very important. And I think we could all, at least for Americans like me, learn to cultivate that I in a holy way. I don't have any problems celebrating. Maybe it is a Southern thing, but all of the like hospitality and the like flowing food and beverage and... <laughs> well, no, that was, that was exceptional, that Thanksgiving last year. That was so much fun. And I'll never forget it. But I don't know if I could repeat it. Like, that was, like, me at my best. <laughs> like, that was peak Rebecca. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to get it again. <laughs> I think, actually, that's one more thing I'm just going to say about celebration. <laughs> this is something that's important to me. And I think maybe people who aren't Orthodox in America do better at this. Celebrating baptisms. It's such a big deal. You know, like, you're welcoming your child, which is such a huge gift, into the church. And, of course, you can't always swing this but at victor at victor's baptism you know Susie, there is a band and dancing babushka dance with um victor's godmother's father <laughs> there's there's photographic evidence and that is goals <laughs> yes and like all this food and stuff like that and that wasn't really practical for us to have a live band when our children were baptized but it was really important to me to have a very nice party and i didn't want to have it in the church basement we didn't have any windows like I wanted to have it in our house, and like it'd be a big event. And I sent out invitations, and that was for our first two sons. And then our third son, we did have the party at, at our church. It did have windows, <laughs> and all three of them, they're so special to me. And I guess maybe because I saw movies with Italian-Americans or something, I don't know. But in my mind, baptism is a party, like a big event, and almost like a wedding, you know. And that's like what I wanted. Yeah. We could do, we could do more of that, guys. We could do that better. I think we could level up. Totally agree. When my daughter was baptized, we had a massive, massive barbecue and it was the best. And I had been planning the baptism while I was still pregnant. When I had an adult goddaughter baptized, we had a big party at my house after. That's the best. Yeah. It's important to be joyous. Show people that their joy is our joy. Right. Yes, absolutely. We better wrap up though. But anyway... What have you been reading and listening to or watching or engaging in this week, Susie? So I have been reading Rodham, which is a novel about, well, first I I tore through The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna and loved it. 
It's about a family. The dad has PTSD from being in Vietnam and he and his wife have a codependent abusive relationship and their daughter is normal, but is now living in Alaska and homesteading. And so it just kind of goes from there and it's really good. It does have stuff about domestic abuse. So that's important to know. And then I started Rodham, which is by Curtis Sittenfeld. And it is a novel about what she thinks would have happened if Hillary Clinton had not married Bill Clinton. Oh my gosh, don't we all think about that? Right. But the thing is, the problem with it is that the first section is just jam-packed with Bill and Hillary getting it on. And I cannot deal. I described it to a friend as reading about your grandparents who you don't like very much and the throes of their passion (laughs) when they were young. The rest of the book has been less graphic, thankfully. That first section, and it was like, I know that they're going to break up because that's the premise of the novel. I just need to get there. It's really weird to be reading a novel that's an alternate history of real people who I'm, you know, familiar with from the media. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, What about you? What are you reading and watching? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before you, I have one other one. I was super sick this week and I watched the entire The Haunting of Bly Manor, the second installment in the Haunting anthology series. And I would like to report that I did not enjoy it as much as the first one, but it was okay. Okay. Well, we're in the middle of it somewhere. And I don't know. I kind of, I'm not impressed particularly. But I don't think I've read much, if any, Henry James. And I think that may be important. No, they've deviated. I mean, like, some of it, sure, but... Well, I I watched this video from Netflix where it explained that each episode has the theme of a Henry James story. Oh. Like a different story. The title of each episode is the title of a Henry James short story, I guess. Okay. Okay. And but all comes yeah. together to be a retelling of The Turning of the Screw, which I also haven't read. Because it was like, well, I think they could have made this in one movie. They didn't have to drag it out. And I, then I saw that and it made a little bit more sense, but also not enough sense because I haven't read any Henry James. I have read and loved The Turning of the Screw. And it's one of those stories that I'm a little obsessed with, actually. I read version when I was young. And ever since then, it just captured my imagination. I think the problem for me with the Haunting Anthology series is that both, this is not a spoiler, but both series have tried to put a positive spin on what happens in the end. And I'm like, this is not a positive ending. Oh, I like a happy ending. I don't mind if, sometimes a sad ending is appropriate. I really hate an ambiguous ending. I hate it. And I know that the original is supposed to have an ambiguous ending. Yeah. I feel like you're, of the two of us, more one to embrace uncertainty, <laughs> if I had to guess. Perhaps true. I can live in the tension, okay. as everybody's saying these days. I can sit in the tension. I can sit with it. So what else have you been reading or watching? Well, okay, so we finished the miniseries of War and Peace from 2018. And I'm pleased to report that my opinions are changed. Yay. As you recall, last week I was saying how all the men Andre, I found out his name was Andre, <laughs> and Nikolai, Nikolska, they call him, and Pierre, I said, I don't like any of them. They're all dumb and stuck up or just 
you know, in the case of Pierre, like nobody's that stupid. Yeah. But I was pleased that everybody had improvements, that this is a story where people forgive each other and because they forgive each other, lives are saved and people are in the right place. There are times it was just very beautiful and people get to be reunited and reconciled. And the only person I feel like did not get her due is Sonia. I don't really, I don't really feel like Tolstoy gave her any, he did her bad. But otherwise, I really liked it. And I'm glad that Natasha didn't end up with Andre. I feel like he learned his lesson. I'm sorry he had to die to do it. But he was sort of a bore. He really was. Yeah. And like, so stuck up. And, you know, he didn't deserve her. She was really nice. But yeah, so I I liked it in the end is what I'm trying to say. I don't know why, but I just thought that these are the characters. I didn't expect a transformation for some reason. I thought it was going to be like, Victor Hugo, you know, like Les Miserables, there's one character has a big change and he goes from being like a a mean ex-prisoner to being a saint in one night. But everybody else is who they are from the beginning and doesn't change. But it wasn't like that at all. So go Tolstoy. Okay, a long time ago now, I saw that Keira Knightley, the director, Joe Wright version of Anna Karenina. Did you see that? No, I haven't. I have actually never watched... Anna Karenina or read it, but I know what happens. Well, this might be of interest to you because it was staged in a stage. Like the whole movie is staged in an old fashioned theater. Oh, cool. And I didn't really get it, but maybe you would if you watched it. It's maybe more a language that you speak than, you know, like an aesthetic language that you would probably that would actually make a lot of sense to you. To me, I was just like, what's wrong with some outdoor scenes and some you know, houses. <laughs> it was literally like people were walking through the back stage, mm-hmm. having conversations as if they were in a drawing room or something. I have seen, I saw Uncle Vanya set like that. Oh, what's Uncle Vanya? Oh, so this is a thing? I guess so. But I mean, Uncle Vanya is a play, <laughs> not a novel. Well, all I have to say, I, I didn't get it. And I, I didn't really understand what Anna Karenina was so upset about all along. Like, okay, fine, he has a mustache. Is that so much to get excited about? You know what I mean? Just, I don't know, I didn't get it. But that's just me. Great literature sometimes goes over my head, Susie. What can I say? All right, well, thanks for doing this with me once again. I'm sorry I kept you late. Gosh, it's 10. As always, it is my pleasure. Stay golden, pony boy. Thank you each and every one for joining us today. We would love to continue this conversation with you on our Patreon-linked Slack channel. We have the Patreon so that, for once, the trolls will have to pay a toll to spew obscenities and call us prostitutes. But we want to cultivate a community there that we can grow towards an in-person, real-life friendships. Please share the podcast with someone you think will like it. And if you liked it, please rate it on iTunes or wherever. If you did not like it, please keep your opinions to yourself. Also, please pray for us. Thanks and talk with you all soon. Bye.